Hello. So here we are again. It's been a while since the last episode. If you're a new listener, welcome. And if you've been listening for a while, welcome back. This is the 21st Rewrite, a podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. Over the last months, I've been preparing to relaunch this podcast, and I now have everything set to bring you a range of different approaches, all focused around the central goal of bringing you inspiring conversations and ideas and insights to help you with your writing. The podcast remains, as before, focused on films from the 21st century, hence the name, and the main podcast format is going to be alternating episodes, one writer's workshop where I provide an analysis of a particular screenplay, followed by an insightful interview episode where I will talk to a screenwriter and we will learn from their experiences and their career as we're going to do today. I'm also working on some additional projects, so please listen out for information on future episodes or follow the 21st Rewrite on Instagram to keep in touch. I've just taken a few months off to travel, mainly around the Mediterranean and the UK, and I chose to put the podcast on hold during that time. Honestly, it was a phenomenal experience, and I do appreciate your patience during this time if you've been missing the podcast. I've come back from this all full of ideas, and I'm very excited to see what this relaunch will bring. So this conversation with the screenwriter Guy Hibbert was actually recorded back in August, so you might hear a few acknowledgements of what was going on during that time, such as the Afghanistan crisis. I've been looking forward to publishing this one ever since, because it's honestly one of my favorite conversations I've had with another writer. Typically, each podcast episode focuses around a particular screenplay, and even though we do get to talk quite a bit about Eye in the Sky, we also do talk a lot about Guy's perspective and his career. As he's self-taught and self-made as a writer, I think he's just one of those people we can learn so much from as we're trying to find our own path into becoming writers as a career. I reached out to talk to Guy because I just absolutely love this screenplay. It's one of I think one of the top screenplays of the last decade, Eye in the Sky, a thriller film. The cast was brilliant for this one. It was Helen Mirren, Aaron Paul, Alan Rickman, and Barkhad Abdi. And of course, Alan Rickman, this was his final live action film in which he appeared. Uh, the film was directed by South African director Gavin Hood, who has done a number of interesting films touching on difficult subjects and... I really hope that you enjoy listening to the writer today, Guy Hibbert, uh, talk about how he came about this story, his approach to writing screenplays. He is a writer who's very driven to write because he feels like he's got stories that he wants other people to experience and learn from, and he hopes that those stories will actually change people's minds or get them thinking. And one of the things I loved so much about Eye in the Sky when I first saw it is just how many questions and conversation points that it raises. It is a story about a drone strike that is going to take place in Kenya, overseen by British and American military, and how the decision made will affect civilians on the ground, aside from just the potential targets, the terrorists that they're targeting with the drone. If you haven't seen it already, I highly recommend you do so. And without further ado, let's get on to the episode, and you can hear from Guy Hibbert himself. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and this week I'm joined by a special guest. Guy Hibbert is a screenwriter based in London. He is known for a number of films, including Five Minutes of Heaven, Eye in the Sky, and A United Kingdom. Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. So just to begin with, today I'm hoping to focus a lot of our conversation on your screenplay, Eye in the Sky, which is a powerful film exploring the ethics of warfare and decisions being made by commanders in the military, which affect the lives of people on the ground. But before we get into that conversation, I did want to start out just talking about yourself and your career. How did you initially get into writing for film in the first place? Well, I started off in theatre. Uh, I was actually a stagehand 
uh, and then a stage manager for about 10 years. And I think I probably learned how to write through through uh, being backstage and touring, a, for instance, a play. We toured, um, I toured a Terence Rattigan play and particularly a Harold Pinter play, uh, No Man's Land for, No Man's Land was for about two, three months. We, we did that night after night. And listening to it, you get to know the play really well. And you start learning how dialogue is written how rhythm is written how to how to how to write how to make dialogue sound surprising energetic dangerous all those kind of qualities that you need then so I started writing plays I wasn't very successful at it I had a couple of plays at the Oxford Playhouse where I was where I was a writer where I was writer in residence for a year I had one play on at the Hampstead Theatre which um uh, which was that did okay, and then I spent quite a number of years struggling. I had uh, two stepchildren and I had my own child to support, and I ended up doing sort of in my mid thirties at one or two radio plays, painting and decorating, and stuff like that. And then I had the fortune, and I think all writers need a little bit of fortune. Hmm. I'd written a play on spec called Master of the Marionettes, which a friend of mine called Hilary Salmon who later became head of drama at BBC London. She got a job as a trainee script editor in Birmingham with a brilliant producer called Michael Waring, probably famous for our friends in the North and, and boys from the black stuff. And he said if, he, if, he could, uh, if I could rewrite the play as a screenplay in one week, he'll put it on. And in those days, TV was a producer would say, wow, I like this, this is interesting, let's do it, and you'd do it the next week. Instead of now, where you're waiting a year for for somebody to read the script and then and only to move it up to the to the, the the next desk above them, and that's how we did it. He got a a, a director from the theatre, Peter James, to to direct it, and basically they sort of gathered round me and taught me a crash course of how to write a screenplay. I mean, at that time, 1989, there were no screenplay manuals around. I didn't know what ext and int were, for instance. I had, they had to tell me what ext meant. Sure. So it was very basic stuff. And then, when, and the play was actually it was, it was on a, it was called Play for Today series, uh, one of six, on BBC One prime time, and it was successful. And uh, I got commissioned to do the next one, which Michael Waring, the next two actually, which Michael Waring both produced. And then I started, I was, I was never out of work then in TV, always wanting to write a film script, but never quite getting there. In those days, if you were a TV writer, you stayed a TV writer. Mm. And there wasn't this any sort of crossover. And if you tried to get a film script off the ground, you were saying, no, he's a TV writer. We don't, we don't, we don't commission TV writers. It was that sort of atmosphere. And in fact, Eye in the Sky was a TV, commissioned as a TV script. Um, and then again, by a bit of fortune, oh, really? yeah, again, by a bit of fortune, it became uh, a film script. It was sort of opened out. And I worked with Stephen Wright on a film, which you just mentioned earlier, called Five Minutes of Heaven with Liam Neeson and James mm-hmm. Nesbitt, with Oliver Hirschbiegel, the director probably best known for Downfall. And we'd all had a great time on that in terms of uh, it being artistically very successful we all got on really well creatively and uh, I had I called Stephen Wright who had then become head of drama at uh, BBC Northern Ireland and I said Stephen this is I think around 2008 I said there's something about warfare and our connection with it that's changed Um, something about drone warfare that disturbs me and I, I don't know quite what it is but can we have a look? And he said, yeah, 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 that sounds sounds really interesting. I'll commission it. So he commissioned it, and then we did quite a lot of research, and he found one of the people who, was, uh, who I worked with as, as in, in that research process, a guy called Chris Lincoln-Jones, who was, I think he was a serving artillery man then. Uh, he was also had, it was in the military intelligence and knew quite a lot about drone warfare and, and, and AI artificial intelligence warfare and we went to see him uh in his uh house on on the base uh, somewhere near salisbury plain 
and rather delightfully actually he was in his kitchen making jam um, which wasn't which was not what i was expecting an artillery man to be doing um and he told me about the process of drone warfare in terms of the chain of command and that because everybody's got the battlefield on their computers in the moment at the same time who makes the decision because everybody wants to have their opinion on that on that decision it's instantaneous uh, and I think there's a line in the film whereby the uh, Alan Rickman playing the senior military commander in the Cobra room uh, in government says to exasperated says to a politician you make the decision to go to war and we fight it and, and stop interfering and Chris then said this is called we call it in the military the kill chain whereby there's a command where the military guy, the guy on the battlefield, wants to take action and wants to take it now. But there's a whole command of saying, if you do that, then it's going to affect this. It's going to it, 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 it might mm-hmm. affect my career. If it goes up to the politician, well, look, if I make this, this decision without the foreign secretary giving permission, then I might, my career might be affected. And then the foreign secretary says, well, if I make a decision without the prime minister and that that then my career might be affected. And so that was the kill chain. And, and the moment he, he mentioned the kill chain, I thought, well, okay, that's the drama. Uh, that's how to, how to, how to uh, write a screenplay about drone warfare. Yeah, so you found the story within... You, you had the initial idea and the, the theme was evident to you, what you wanted to focus on initially, but then it was through the research that you actually found the story underlying it and, and how to connect all of the... The narrative together through this chain of command. Yeah. So generally, what I do with all with 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 if I've got an idea for something, I should investigate this for part of society or something, and then I do quite a lot of reading on it, a bit of thinking on it, and then I do a lot of research, and I'm hoping that in that research, I somewhere along the line, I ask somebody the right question, and they give me an answer which I'm surprised by, which gives me the clue to how to write the piece. Or to give me the tone of the piece, or the spirit of the soul of the piece, or whatever, and that's how I do it. And I do a, I do a lot of research, and I don't really like be sitting at a desk anyway, because um, <laughs> I like to get out out of the house more than more than I'm allowed to normally. And that's how, and that's how that happened. That 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 screenplay with with five minutes of heaven again. That was a story where Northern Ireland drama said. What happened in South Africa was the uh, um, was the process of reconciliation in terms of sort of post-apartheid, and whether, in terms of the troubles, post-troubles, whether there could be some reconciliation process that could happen here. Do you want to have a look at it? And I spent probably a couple of years trying to think about this, and I didn't come up with anything until. Uh, Owen O'Callaghan, one of the producers on Five Minutes of Heaven, introduced me to Alistair Little, who Liam Neeson played in the film, mm-hmm. who was killed a um, was a seventeen year old boy in Lurgan, Northern Ireland, a small town in Northern Ireland, who who was uh, on the Protestant Orange side, and he just crossed uh, the, the the main road, the main street in the town onto the Catholic side and uh, and killed this, eight, I think he was 18-year-old, uh, watched by Joe, played by James Nesbitt, who was then uh, an 11-year-old boy. And so I started doing a lot of research with Alistair and listening to his story. And I needed to, then I needed to meet Joe, who was now 40-odd. This is 30 years later, 25 years later. And it took about six months to track down Joe and then I spent a year talking to Joe. So I spent a year and a half talking to the guys. And and then I did a what if on it. What if these guys would meet? And I asked them, what if, you know, I asked them each, okay, let's just go into a fantasy here and say, what if you were, you were going to meet each other 25 years later? And I got their feelings and emotions about that. And then I just wrote the screenplay based on basically their stories and what they told me. And then I brought them together in the film. So that was that process. So that was, again, another long, long, 
long, long process of working out the truth of a situation and then um, in, work, in trying to work out the truth of the situation and then how to tell the story evolves from that. I mean, this is a really fascinating, it's almost uh, something I wasn't prepared for before starting to talk to you. I haven't actually heard too many other writers who have given me a story like this. Um, so I do want to ask more about it because I think it's going to be interesting to the others who are listening to the podcast as well in terms of it's the two questions that are kind of arising right now for me. Are, one is just how you say you could do this process of research, but it's not just going and reading books. You're actually going and meeting people. And then question that arises there is the responsibility you might feel to these people getting involved in their lives and learning more about them and how they perceive the world. How do you balance that with trying to also tell a compelling narrative or show some of the darker sides of that person, especially uh, in this case, as someone who's committed murder. Well, in terms of five minutes of heaven, that was a very, very difficult, long process of the, of the two men trusting me. Uh, you know, one of them was a killer, and the other one was the uh, was was the victim of the killer in terms of his brother being being the victim. Joe still hated Alistair, didn't want to meet him. So I was pushing them to saying, what if, what if there was any attempt at reconciliation? I was actually looking for a story about reconciliation, but I, then I realized there wasn't any reconciliation. And, and through understanding that there wasn't any reconciliation, you understood how difficult the whole situation in Northern Ireland is in the Troubles, that there is no easy answer and that it's very delicate. And when I'm thinking of the time that I spent researching and understanding the Troubles through the, these, two men, this, these two men's stories, um, you realise in contemporary society, of course, how, how, how difficult Brexit is in terms of where Northern Ireland is sitting now, how precarious the peace, peace process is. And when those people who understand all that said, look, you've got to be really careful what you're dealing with here in terms of the Good Friday Agreement and, and the peace process and all that, it really is precarious. You know, it can turn in a moment, just as Afghanistan right now in this day we're speaking has turned in, 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 in a week. So it could turn again if we're not very, very careful. And I had to be very, very careful talking to these, these two guys very respectful of them, very respectful of their stories. Um, and I, because, and also it was the most traumatic moment of both their lives uh, for the killer as well as the, uh, as, 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 as well as the brother who had to watch his, his older brother being shot five times in the head, you know, it's, it's in, in his living room. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, it, I was in Belfast only, in December of 2019, I went there to interview Glenn Patterson, who he's um, he's a screenwriter and um, is currently he's at the Seamus Heaney Center in the University of Belfast. Right. Yeah. And um, one of the things that stuck with me ever since was he obviously grew up in Belfast and during the Troubles, and he said, "You can't understand how fast things can change." that how things had been in the 60s as they moved into the 70s. Everything changed so fast. And then, of course, having seen him in December, by March, the entire world was a completely different place. <laughs> and the entire yes. world was locked down. And that just really yeah. stuck with me that in that moment, he was someone talking to me from his experience of history in the, and of being in, in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. But that... In any part of uh, life, we can get complacent and forget just how how fragile a lot of the things we take for granted truly are. Abs absolutely, uh, I, and it's one of the, it's one of the key lessons we should all be also learn, but also should be constantly aware of. I did a film in uh, for HBO. Um, I can't remember when it was. Now it was nineteen ninety something or other six or something and it was about the siege of sarajevo shot through the mm. heart you know kids were going to school together for 
from the age of five, six, seven, eight, up right up to 17, 18. And then at the age of 18, the war kicks off in Bosnia and suddenly turning the gun on each other when they were in school mm-hmm. together for 10 years. Yeah. And it changes that quickly. And how exactly what you're saying, how easily everything can change in a moment. And we've got to be aware of that. So I need a purpose for telling a story. And so that's the purpose for telling that one. Yeah, actually. Um, so for, once you've got these ideas, you've got all of that research, we're talking about getting the story down on the page. And in in Five Minutes of Heaven, you found the characters, maybe that drives the story. For something like Eye in the Sky, it's a big array, a huge cast of characters, and showing the kind of interconnected nature of of globalized society and how decisions made even in a different continent can affect other people. But I do think it's interesting how you mentioned this uh, artillery man you you met kind of making jam at his house. You get a bit of that sense with the British officers in Eye in the Sky as well, just how they've got this normal life to live, and then they have to go in and put on this uniform and make these decisions and play that role. Uh, well, I, I think at the time I was thinking about Eye in the Sky, so it was around 2008, there wasn't that much interest in drone warfare, that it wasn't in the news. Mm. You know, there were obviously some, some uh, a few articles. It wasn't in the zeitgeist. Um, um, it wasn't being talked about in daily conversation, let's put it that way. Um, so I was intrigued about how, you know, w- w- what it was. and But also, as I developed the story, I was, and this is something I'd been wanting to put in a story for a long time, warfare something like since this end of the Second World War, 80% of victims uh, of war of civilians. So, and I was getting tired of films about war that were always about soldiers when, in fact, the real victims were civilians. But how do you put a civilian at the centre of a story when, it's, when, the, when, when the civilian is a passive victim? But it seemed like the passive victim is the story that you should be telling about warfare, actually. It's not about the heroic soldier or the unheroic soldier um, or the dodgy general or the heroic general. It's not about this, it's about the civilian. They're, they're the people who are in the middle of it all. So I decided then that I would, I would make the centre of the story a, a civilian victim. Um, so that's how I got the the idea for the little girl in the story, and that she would be the centre of of the story. And um, so I had these two themes. I then, of course, have had the kill chain, and then mm-hmm. I had the the little girl, and you know, and then it become that becomes, of course, very toxic because they're all discussing should this little girl die or not, in terms of um, should we kill her in order to save unknown other people and. You know the whole, as you mentioned, the whole moral ethical debate of the of of the story. So you know that came from those two original thoughts, with, without actually having a story in my head. How do I put the victim at the centre of a story, and how do I address future warfare? When you started writing it, did you? I guess you you wanted to probably not get the story you're trying to tell lost by uh, associating it with one particular conflict, which is why it takes place in an almost, um, not imaginary conflict, but, you know, it's it's not a specific Iraq war story or a Syria story or, or something like that. It That frees us up from maybe our preconceptions and, our, and the stuff we would bring into the film. Uh, yes, thank you. You prompted me to think of the th- third idea I had for a story. I was interested in cities and how megacities would be run because we're looking at cities like Mexico City, what, 30 million people, mm-hmm. uh, Sao Paulo and the Chinese cities, a lot of the Chinese cities. And so these megacities are so huge that how do you actually operate them? Um, how, how, how do you make them into civic societies? when they surely are 30 million people is uncontrollable and that actually certain parts of the city would come under control of a rogue element, either a criminal element or maybe a, a clan element. And I, I remember having a conversation with a, I went to meet a professor of ge- geography at Oxford, ge- geography and history, 
can't remember his exact title, and to have a discussion with him about uh, megacities and the problems that's going to happen in the future. And um, I had been to Kenya, and actually my daughter at that time was working for United Nations in and out of Kenya and Somalia. Um, and I went to visit her, and um, she took me around the area of, of uh, Nairobi that was actually kind of not controlled by, but um, had an Al-Shabaab element, criminal element in it, where they could, uh, they didn't actually control the city, but there was a big dispute between the Kenyans who didn't like the Somalians. It was a Somalian community in which Al-Shabaab were present in that area. And um, the Kenyans, they were not putting any, uh, were not collecting rubbish in the area, were not were not um, improving the roads, uh, huge potholes in the roads that made them ba- barely able to drive a truck through, uh, uh, along them because the Somalians weren't cooperating with the Kenyans. And so this was, uh, so I was able to witness what, I was getting worried about in terms of somewhere like Mexico, which is a city I also knew, in terms of how, how what happens if one part of that city just becomes unruly mm. and subject to terrorism or warfare. So I then decided that I'd set uh, Eye in the Sky in a Somalian area of Nairobi. Um, so again, that was another element. That was three elements of of, of, of thinking about society and oh, you know how, how do I how do I tell a story that is somehow relevant to um, what's happening today which is really what I what I think I should be doing as a writer so one thing we were talking about uh, previously was how you started working in theater and um, one of the common experiences between Theatre, television, and film, of course, is that these are things that can be viewed by a group together as opposed to something like a novel, which is typically a singular experience. One person is just reading by themselves. And I think the one of the things that is most interesting about Eye in the Sky is that all the ethical questions that get raised carry on as you leave the cinema and as you're with the group that you're with when you're watching it. It turns into an extra on top of the film you've just watched, but also that act of processing it and thinking through those questions and this kind of what would you do in this scenario. I was just wondering how much of that was present in your mind when you were writing it in terms of it doesn't feel like there's a particular point of view, but it's to raise more questions and to get people to think, which I think is a really interesting approach. Well, there's a long answer to that, and Mm. I'll probably give you the long answer please do go ahead uh uh yeah um i think when i was you know when i was sort of 16 17 18 in the late in the late 60s uh, there was a lot of um uh there was the anti-vietnam movement there was the you know the 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 peace peace movement anti-nuclear movement there was civil rights movement there was anti-apartheid all these sort of student movements were swirling Mm -hmm. around and what and how do we react to our societies we're about to enter as adults and i was into music and most of my friends were were into music and most of us were at that time and i i was particularly interested in in the doors now the hmm. Doors, Jim Morrison was was uh, influenced by Julian Beck, who was a revo- revolutionary uh, th- revolutionary theatre. Um, he had a revolutionary theatre, and I can't remember the name of the, the name of the group now. But I went to see them as well, and their idea was that uh, you know that you you use theatre to galvanise people into revolution. I mean, it all sounds hmm. you know all sounds a bit of a nonsense now, but what didn't feel like it then was, you know, one sort of, as you get older, you realize evolution's the only answer and not revolution. However, that's another question. So I then, that's how I went into theater. I went, moved from music into theater from, from, uh, from reading Julian Beck's book about how you can change society through, through theater. 
Now, at the same time, there was a film which I'm sure you had heard of if you haven't seen it, it Cathy Come Home, hmm. written by Jeremy Sanford, Ken Loach's film that was on on BBC in 1966, which was about homelessness, and 20 million people watched that. And uh, as a result of that, the charity shelter in, in Britain was set up, which is still running today. And I look, and I was sitting at home. I was sixteen at the time, and I was thinking, "Wow, you can change society. Actually, you you can actually change society through writing a screenplay, through writing something for TV." And at that time, uh, in that late sixties, early seventies, the British television was called the National Theatre of Britain because it it challenged society. It asked you to question everything about your society socially engaged everybody in terms of what was happening and that was very exciting for mm. somebody here is television is the place you can go mm. to um, have a debate about society with society and that means that if i if you know i, I could i could enter that debate as a writer national on a national scale so that was very exciting for me so of course, I didn't know how to get into TV. I'd left school at 15. I hadn't had an education. Um, I, you know, I, I worked as a stagehand. I, I, had, I had no learning at all. So it took me about 20 years to get to that point whereby I was actually had something on television. And then around, I think it was about 1995 or something like that, Peter Kosminski, who was still one of the top socially engaged directors in, in Britain at that time and still now, he asked me to look at a, a subject about how child abuse, sexual abuse as a child, how that turns into being a prostitute when you get older. So it's the link between prostitution and abuse as a child. And I spent a long time researching that story and I learned a lot from Peter Kosminski as I did with Paul Greengrass when I did the Omar film about how important research was and if you research deep enough and I don't mean just looking at a few newspapers and just uh, 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 reading a few books if you actually just go into the society you're researching the subject you're researching in a real way in an active way the story is never what you think it is. It's always different. Every single time, it's different from what you sow or what, whatever you think the story is. I was talking about Five Minutes of Heaven. I thought about reconciliation. It wasn't about reconciliation. It's a lot tougher than that. And this film, which is called No Child of Mine, um, the abuse was so horrific. And um, my first screenplay, my first draft of it was rejected by everybody, uh, the broadcasters. Peter himself rejected it, asked me to rewrite it in a total different way, rejected it because it was so it was so mm. raw and so distressing that everybody thought this, this is mm. impossible to put this story. But I knew it was the truth because I was telling this particular girl's story and I'd spent a lot of time with this girl with her story. And it was so distressing, nobody could see a way of doing it. And then I think it was on Christmas Eve, one uh, and one year, Peter, about six months later, Peter called me up and said, I've just gone back to your script and I realise we have to do your, we have to do it. We have to do your original draft. And we did it. And um, it became, before it went out, it, for, 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 for various reasons, it became front page headlines in, 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 in most of the newspapers mainly attacking it, saying this is just unbelievable and this could never happen in the country. But when the story went out, they didn't put it out. ITV put it out at 10.40 at night, didn't finish till gone midnight, but they had 5 million people watching it. And they had a helpline and about 50,000 people phoned the helpline, many of them saying they'd been abused themselves. And I realised actually then that, you know, Kathy come home and 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 the National Theatre uh, of Britain through television. You you know you do have that power uh, if you find the right story and uh, if you manage to tell it in the right way. And uh, I, from then on, I've always my writing has always geared towards 
um, stories that I think should be told rather than stories I might like to tell, if, 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 if I can make a difference in that. And I did another another film called May the 33rd much later, uh, a few years later, which again was based on extreme abuse, this time control of an adult through, through abuse. Um, and I did a film, I did a two-part series of, called Blood and Oil about corruption in, in, the, in, in the Niger Delta in Nigeria, corruption of politicians in the oil industry. Um, so I've always um, gone to stories like that Really, so that's so that's um, really the the most the, the most influential film in my time was probably Kathy Come Home, Ken Loach's. I think his most powerful mm. film, and that's saying something when it's <laughs> when it's Ken Loach. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, well, it's, it's a shame in a way that uh, that TV has lost its power in a way because, and he, did, I think he did Price of Coal, which was a magnificent uh, three parter about class and the coal mm. industry and the treatment of the miners. And I think by making films for the art house circuit, he's kind of lost his popular audience and he's mm. actually, he's the people who are actually watching his films now are people who know what his films are going to be like and they're going to confirm their own ideas. Whereas when he was working in television, he had this huge audience. Uh, of course, there was only BBC uh, and, and ITV then at that time there were only two channels, so um, you know you had it, you feel like you had your captive audience. But it's a it's a shame that we've that we we we've lost that sense of having a national a national theatre. We've become homogenised. We've become global with the streamers. You know we're all that BBC has to doesn't have enough money to make its own dramas. You know it has to co-produce with one of the streamers with HBO or with whoever it is, AMC mm. or something. And we've lost that ability to say, we should be telling this story now. And the producer saying, yeah, we will, we'll commission it, we'll do it, and we'll do it in nine months' time or something. It's, uh, it's a shame we've lost that. I agree. And also I, f I feel that part of that is that sort of um, binge drama culture that we've got at the moment. Um, which is all, you know, very well produced, very expensively produced series that just seem to go on and on and on, you know. And the and the debates you have with producers, you go into a a production office. So, what ideas have you got? And you talk about it, and they say, "Yeah, well," and I say, "Well, it could be a four parter." Uh, well, four parts is not really, you know. Could it? Can we make it? Well, it's got to be six, really, because no, they no one will take anything less than six, preferably ten. And then, can we talk about how season, how it will develop into season two? Well, then you're doing sort of you're doing binge drama or you're doing quality soap opera. I mean, it it's all reduces to that, and you've lost the reason why you mm -hmm. want to tell the story. And there's no sort of you that you get so far removed from an, a debate about a subject, which which your which your drama is uh, is 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 giving people an opportunity to debate something, um, and it's a, it's it's a shame. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons I have I've been asked many times why I don't do TV series on the twenty first rewrite, and I only focus on film. And one of the reasons is because I feel that a film has this kind of cohesiveness into the story that it. It basically is what the filmmakers intended it to be to the best of their ability with the, the budget and the, the cast and the, the crew and every, everyone who was involved in it at that time and the technology of the time, of course. But you get to tell that story as, a, as this unit, whereas with television, it can just go on forever. And um, often you do see television shows melding and becoming things that they were not originally intended to be. And it is a sign, often the sign of a quality television show to know when to bow out and to say, you know, we've done three years of this, or we've done four years of this, and we've told the story we wanted to tell. I totally agree. Uh, the, probably, I think the best example of, uh, of, the, of, of that is, I think, a series called Casualty, popular in, in the UK mm -hmm. for about 25 years, was originally thought of as a six-parter about how 
Prime Minister Thatcher was dis- was destroying that National Health Service. Nobody remembers that now, of course. No, I, I didn't know that because it's just become a soap. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, yeah, so, so it was going to be like Boys from the Black, Black Stuff set in the National Health Service. You know, it was going to be a going to be punching Thatcher in the face for for destroying our National Health Service culture, and it's just become a soap opera. And that's the most extreme example of uh, of uh, of what's happening. And I think I'm hoping that particularly the streamers will come back to doing single dramas, uh, particularly the BBC will come back to, to doing single dramas and the cinema will start thrive, thriving again. Every, the whole, everything's like black hole is sucking everybody into these streamers at the moment. And it's actually narrowing what, what we are able to do as storytellers. Hmm. Um, and storytelling is being swallowed up by people. You can make a, so much money out of these, out of series now. If you've got a hit series, that producers make fortunes, writers can make fortunes, actors can make fortunes. Everybody's being, everybody's gone. It's a gold rush, basically. And you know, gold rushes end up with you end up with no culture at the end of it. You end up with just greed. And I think that's what we've got to at the moment. It'll swing back. And I'm hoping that actually film will 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 make it swim a uh, uh, swing back eventually uh, when people go back to the cinemas and realise what they've exactly what they've missed because they're just, I'm just sick of binging on sort of spending a whole weekend watching two seasons of something and feeling <laughs> sick at the end of it. Yeah, one of the things I noticed once I started studying film more precisely, you know, but with regularity for the podcast and watching films from different decades from reading screenplays these all the things that i was doing i did find it very hard to go back to tv shows afterwards yeah there was just something that that there is still a quality inherent in the best cinema the the kind of cinema that is quite rightly put on all in theaters all around the world to be viewed at the same time by audiences of every single background it's there's something going on there that it's hard to go back to tv afterwards Absolutely, because it is such a great format, a great cultural format. It will, it it will have its, uh, it'll have its swing up again. I'm absolutely certain of it. And maybe there's something also to say for minimalism a little bit in in just the art of writing and and storytelling. Because, for example, uh, Eye in the Sky, you've you've got so many characters, but you can communicate a lot about those characters with just small details and actually when i read the screenplay i noticed there were even some more background stories to those characters that had kind of been removed over the course of the rewrites or the editing process of you've got your air force pilot um steve who he lives with his mother who's trying to make ends meet but that's kind of that's dropped out the the final film yeah well yeah, so in my original screenplay, it was just a day in the life of 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 each of each person, and it, this is they get up in the morning. This is what they do during the day, and they go to go and they go home at night. And so, I in the sky was how. So, you know, the first person I thought of was the drone pilot who goes to his porter cabin in mm. uh, in the desert, uh, looks at a few people in um, in Nairobi kills one of them and goes back home to tea and he's probably living with his mother so that was that was the idea for that and then when we had one of the uh, i think it was universal studios was interested in the film um and then they dropped it in the end but they said yeah but can we have we, we, i want to know what all these characters are like can you can you do an intro for each character so i did an intro i wrote an intro for each character and then we filmed them, Gavin filmed them, and then we saw in the edit, actually, we just don't want to care whether, <laughs> care about what happens to these. We just need one of them. We, all we need is, is, is one of them just to uh, show that their, their day began like this and the little girl's day began like that. And mm-hmm. it was the, actually it was the Helen Mirren character we, we used at the end as being somebody whose day begins in bed and ends going home in the rain. And the little girl's dead. You didn't need everybody's story. 
So although we filmed quite a lot of it, it was just cut out in the edit. Yeah, and I think that's what I'm referring to with that minimalism in terms of once you've established that for just a couple of characters, the audience kind of gets into making those connections themselves yeah. of, well, therefore other characters also have lives of their own. It's um, it's it's very neat the way you can do this in screenwriting, I think. It, 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 it's, it's interesting, the first acts of films, the first 15 minutes of the films. I, I was working on a script that was never got made uh, quite recently, actually, with uh, David Putnam. Uh, I was sitting with him, uh, we just watched Chariots of Fire, actually, in his home. He hadn't seen it for years and years and years. And we were just sort of talking about how films begin. And he said, you know, however many films he's made, about 30 films, he said, we never, ever got Act One right. We never knew when the film actually starts, because there's always a scene whereby you get, ah, that's where the film starts. That's the scene when the audience go, now I'm in it. And, uh, and he said, you never know when that is. And I've always, I felt the same of all the scripts I've, I've made. I've never known when the film starts, but you know it in the edit. Yes. You know it when you see the stuff and you say, oh, that's the scene. Now I'm in the film. And um, I don't think we know. It's, the, it's one of those kind of the, the trickiest thing is to know when the moment when your audience engage. And I've never got it right. And do you have a feeling about when that might be in Eye in the Sky? That moment when this film begins? Um, I was just trying to think when I was saying that. I was just trying to think. Uh, I probably have to watch it again. I haven't watched it for a while to just to, to see. Yeah. To, to me, it's. I think it's a scene where the, um, the drone pilot and um, th there's two of them and they're watching the girl yeah. twirling with her hula hoop. Probably, yes, probably. And again, that is a moment of editing as well. There's, there's a, even though it is called out in the screenplay as quite a significant moment, it's still it's a screenplay, so it only gets three or four lines. But of course, in the film, I think it gets this whole, this whole moment and music and everything. And I think it becomes clearer. And, yeah, she's twirling the hoop round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was always actually, yeah, that was interesting because that was always one of the most important is only only a couple of lines in the screenplay but that was always one of the most important moments in my head uh for the for the screenplay it was the probably the most strong the strongest visual moment i i had hmm. and uh yeah you're probably right that's that's probably where it starts but of course you have to have you have to give audience information at the beginning you have to give them some information yeah, prior to that, there's a lot of setup and it's, yeah. it's just introducing characters. And I think we, another thing that we're willing to do in film is is give it those first 10 to 15 minutes of setup as long as it we get the payoff and that we get to see the action rising shortly after yeah. that point. Yeah, yes, you have to, uh, it's all about giving the audience the clues that they need um, rather than indulging your own sort of desires onto it. It's 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 absolutely only give the audience what they need in their first fifteen minutes. Otherwise, it drags because the audience. What you're doing as an audience, of course, is you're looking for clues. Why am I watching this film? Who is the main character? Where where am I focusing my eyes? It's the audience is asking these questions, and you have to answer those questions very very succinctly. Once they're satisfied. I know why I'm watching this film. I know what's. I know why. I, I know who I'm supposed to be watching. I know who I'm going to be interested in. Then they can sit back and say, "Okay, now give me the story." And that's what you've got to do in your first act. Trickiest part. I I did want to ask you about um, perhaps, and again, these are just connections that I've personally made while watching it. So it might not even be part of what you intended at all but i was wondering about whether there's any slight religious and that's religious with a small r rather than a, a capital r sentimentality there in terms of the idea of this eye the concept of the eye in the sky of a lot of shots of looking down from above and that you know who really has a choice over life and death often you know traditionally society would 
is very very uncomfortable with those choices and has to again we pass it on to the law or to kings or to you know some sort of rulers of society to to have that but we don't often it's not right for a, a the average person we shouldn't feel that comfortable with that responsibility over someone else's life and death and knowing that we can't have the full information probably not but i'll answer your question in a very different way i i sure. think everything i write is about is about love hmm. uh and i mean by that a sort of love of hu- of of humanity and i think you as a writer i can't think of any other way to come to a story except a connection with with love in some in, 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 a, in a big, in a, in, a, in a profound way. I mean, in a sort of, you talk about a religious way, in a way that Christians will talk, probably talk about love as not being an in, individual mm. uh, love or passion, but it's actually having a love of humanity. And, and, and that's really the story that the, the only stories worth telling are those stories. And of course, you know, you can write a, a, a you can have a wonderful sitcom that is actually a love of humanity. You think of something like Richard Curtis's uh, mm. sitcoms, you know, Vicar of Dibley or whatever, and, and uh, you know, even people are being terrible to each other in those in those stories. And obviously, a lot of sitcom is people being terrible to each other. We think, or, or you think about people just, people just doing nothing, or that that you know, they, there's a tremendous love for the characters. And pity, and uh, all those kind of good things that we should feel about each other. Um, so it's not just in terms of doing social or political content. It's actually it's what you bring, what you bring. To, you bring you bring a plate to society, a plate of food to society for them to eat and to nourish them. Really, that's what you're doing. I think you're you're kind of bringing food. Um, to society and, and, and nourishing them. So it's a lovely answer. Perhaps a, a little bit more on the on the writing side we can talk about in, in terms of, uh, you said you, you're largely self-taught as, as a writer or have learned from others as opposed to, you know, any kind of yep. professional, um, you know, academic training in writing, which is now quite a, a common path into screenwriting. So... I'm wondering what your thoughts are on just how one can become a writer, how one can can figure out how to tell the stories that they they want to tell. It's very difficult to answer that question. I did a a, a couple of years ago, just before lockdown, I did a um, a two days of masterclasses in China um, mm. for about two hundred sort of mature film writers, producers, and directors, uh, and I sort of felt I had to address that question of uh, of why why I become a writer in a Chinese society it's 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 difficult mm-hmm. in terms of uh, in terms of what's uh, what's happening there in terms of censorship there are few stories that you can tell and it seemed like the reason for them to tell a story is quite potent you know in terms of uh, addressing society in some sort of way absolutely um, just as this is in 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 in, in every society, um, I think the reason you think you've got to sort out the reason why you want to tell a story first of all, you want to sort of untangle your life uh, uh, to a certain extent and say, why am I wanting to tell this story? And if it's because I want to, I want the style, I want to be famous, or if it's I just want to be a, or I just want to. I just want to be part of, you know. I love I or I love movies, you know. That's not a that's not a good enough reason. I found my journey was a very very long journey, partly because I wasn't I was self educated and I learned. I, I went on a long journey, learning slowly rather than kind of um, having a speeded up journey in terms of sort of three years of it of learning how to do this, that, and the other ones, or, or three years spent with three, with with a group of people who are all keen or, or to get to a certain, you know, or keen on literature or screenwriting or whatever it is, or theatre. 
I was with a disparate sort of group of people all the time and, and also having to work as a living. I tried to put it to the writers in this masterclass I did in China that actually it's hard work. It's actually, you've just, it's a slog. And there's no getting away around it unless you're brilliant, unless you're someone like Tom Stoppard who could write brilliant articles, write brilliant plays, write brilliant screenplays, talk wonderfully well, write, write theses about philosophy or whatever. Unless you're someone like Tom Stoppard, it's a hard slog. And I'm not a Tom Stoppard. Um, I don't have his. I don't have his brilliance. So I have to work hard. Hmm. And I've worked 12 hours a day. You know, I work six days a week, 12 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week. And I still do it, even though I'm at the moment, you know, I have not had that much. I've not had anything made for a while, partly because of stuff abandoned uh, uh, because of COVID. Hopefully I've got a film uh, being produced next year. And... Um, uh, it's just hard work. I'd say just work hard um, and know why you're doing it. Is, uh, is is the two things. There's no there's no shortcut, uh, and you're always learning. You know, I, I I always feel that every time I write a script, it's a mountain, and I don't yeah. know how I'm going to climb it. It it's I don't know how I'm going to get up to the top, and I fear it. Um, and as and I also mentioned this the film Free Solo. Do you remember that incredible story of the guy who climbs climbs the sheer, sheer face? Yes, I have. I, I I did see that one in the cinema, and it was definitely worth seeing on the big screen. Yeah. Wow, it definitely is worth seeing on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. And I mentioned that, and I mean that is it is an extraordinary person doing an extraordinary thing, and I said, but what is really interesting about it is that he had visualised every single, every single hand grip all the way up that mountain. He had researched it and visualised it, and understood it. He had understood every single part of the surface of it sounds like oh my god this guy's doing this incredible thing and he's got no ropes and he's just going to die and he's and he's and how is he going to do that and what if his hands and all that kind of all those sort of things up us watching it go into this sort of pat this sweat of panic about how could he do that how could he do that and you actually he has he who has really researched what he was going to do and uh, and so I was telling the guys, you've really got to research your story. You've really got to dig deep into what you're doing. And particularly when I'm researching stuff, I, I, I always dig deep into it. Um, so I think that's I think that's one of the things I tell people: work hard and dig deep. Hmm. Very yeah, very very good advice. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything else um, you wanted to cover yourself on. If you just had anything you were just burning to get off your chest? <laughs> no, not really, no. Also, also in terms of people, there's also scripts. You've, uh, I, I was taught very early on to get rid of favourite lines if they're getting in the way. You know, don't be precious about your work. Bin it, which is very important when you're learning. Just bin stuff. It mm. does, it's not, it's, you know, your work isn't precious. You know, the, the, you, if you die tomorrow the world will just go on oblivious to you it doesn't matter in the end your work is not pre it's not important it's important to, it's important in that moment to you and in that little bit of the universe that you happen to be holding in your hand at that particular time but it doesn't not important to anybody else so just just don't be precious about your work bin it but if you've got a good idea um um and how do you know whether it's a good idea or a bad idea? Um, you, it's persevere with a good idea. If you feel in your bones that you've got something there, persevere. And, I, and all the pieces that have given me a breakthrough, if you like, have been um, pieces that have been abandoned by producers. Eye in the Sky was abandoned by everybody. Hmm. Uh, uh, it took seven years to get up on the screen. 
it was first of all taken up by Film Nation in in, in LA, uh, and they couldn't get it financed. They they got about eighty percent of the finance, the twenty percent of the finance. They just could not find the rest of it. Spent two or three years trying to do it, and eventually they abandoned it. And eventually everybody put the the, the, the screenplay in the bin. And I went to a music friend of mine's garden party in in Richmond in in, in London, and uh, there was a guy called, and also in the music industry, a guy called Jed Doherty there, and he was just going to. Uh, he had a friend called uh, Colin Firth. Colin Firth was wanting to set up a film company, and they were both music nuts anyway. And they said, "Yeah, let's set up a film company." So. My music friend there said, "Oh, let's introduce Jed. He's he's just about to try and he's just teaming up to get into the film industry." And I said, "Oh, hi, how, how are you? I, my name's Guy. Oh, hi, Guy. You know all this kind of stuff going on." And his wife or girlfriend was shouting, "The kids are in the car. You got to come now!" And he said, "Oh, I got to go now." And I said, "Just give me one minute, okay? I've done. I've got this script." And uh, and and, uh, and can you t- he said, I've got to go now, but just text it to me. So I texted it to him, and uh, he took hold of the script, and uh, he ended up producing it. Mm. So it was just that one moment, that one minute of luck. But you kind of have to make your luck. You have to, you have to, you have to get there. And, and, and another, you, you had to have the script ready, certainly at that for that moment in particular. Well, you have to be, you have to as a writer, you have to become your own producer as well. So you have to think like an executive producer. How can I, how can I get this made? Um, how can I, maybe I could get it to someone else. And there was another script I wrote many, many years ago, which was set during, during the Civil War in Sierra Leone. And we'd gone, we'd had gone through various producers, several producers, several directors. Mm. Um, and then just before lockdown, uh, I got a call from Werner Herzog, who had been given the script, and uh, and he said, I, I, "Can you come to LA and I want to meet because I'm interested in doing this as my next film?" So, um, and that, that 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 had been abandoned by so many people. So, if you think you've got a got something, uh, just keep put your producer hat on as a writer. And uh, and try and get that little bit of luck. You always need that luck um, to, uh, uh, as well as your talent, uh, as well as having the good script. It's just not enough. You sometimes you just need that little bit of luck to go your way. And there's many times when luck doesn't go your way. So you just got to keep putting yourself in that position. Mm, yeah, yeah. I've uh, certainly felt that myself a couple of times. And uh... keep going. Just keep going, keep going. Um, yeah, I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting um, Gavin Hood himself uh, a couple years ago in, in San Diego when he was doing a screening of Official Secrets and um, oh yeah, yeah, had a yeah. fantastic conversation with him about what it was like. Um, obviously, he's um, from South Africa, but I was, and we're very different generations. But I told him it completely captured what I was experiencing as a young student when I would I would have still been in we have the high school system we don't have secondary s- schools on the Isle of Wight we have high schools but when we all walked out of high school um in protest at the Iraq war and this feeling that that was one of the last times it felt like something was going on around the entire country that all right know, largely yeah. everyone in the public agreed yeah. with but maybe the government didn't and um yeah, that his, you know, it was a real pleasure to meet him and get to talk about, you know, even however briefly it was, uh, just in an evening of about Eye in the Sky and Official Secrets. So I really admire his input into this debate as well and the, these stories he's he's trying to tell. Totally, yeah, yeah. He's a really he's a he's a big talker. Um, <laughs> he's very good when you do a Q and A. If you're stuck <laughs> on a if you're stuck on a question, he'll come in and take it over without without any problem. Um, yeah, no, he loves. Uh, he, he, so he trained as law, as as, uh, uh, as a lawyer, as um, before he went into film, and he was also in the military. I think he had to do national service for a year or something. 
Um, but he's very, very passionate. Yeah, he's a great. He's that's he's the sort of director that writers love because you know they'll eat eat your script. You know they just absolutely mm. if they've gone if they like it and want to do it they'll devour it. You know, yeah. and also and also be very respectful. Um, and uh, so he's always respectful of the work. He's one of the most respectful directors I've worked with, which is a real pleasure for a writer. Yeah, and and when one actor didn't turn up, he even put himself in the film. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which course. shows the commitment, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might think that was a vanity thing, but um, that was what he told me. He, was, uh, he actually had to put himself in the film. <laughs> Well, I'm sure it was so. Yes, I'm sure he was way too busy trying to trying to do that film to, yeah. to act in it as well. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> right, guy. Well, um, I honestly, I hugely appreciate uh, the fact that you've been able to talk to me today. Um, we've been trying to get this interview set up for a very long time now, and um, it's it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. So, I'd just like to say thank you again. Well, it's, a, it's a great. Well, it's great. Thank, uh, thank you very much. Um, just good to have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a conversation. Haven't had a conversation for about a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.